just going to do the chorus again. I'm sorry, guys. Jesus made it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. I will work on that and bring it back. <laughs> What's that? It's 106 in there. Goodness. Different tune. That's what, what messed us all. Well, what messed me up, I'm sure. Uh, this is a slightly different tune from the original because there was a chorus added to it. Christ alone, cornerstone. 
Father God, I bless you for who you are. I thank you for making us who we are to you. I praise you for being holy. I thank you for the opportunity to gather together. I pray that we would remember who you are and that we wouldn't gather together in corporate worship in a way that truly brings glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Before I begin my um, sermon this morning, I'd invite you to turn to the back of your bulletin. If you have one, there is a <clears throat> call to worship there that I would like us to read. It's a responsive reading, pretty self-explanatory. I'll do the leader part, you all do the people part. For the Lord's ways are completely good. For the Lord fills us with compassion and mercy and everlasting love. Praise God for these gracious gifts. So last Sunday, I mentioned that I just recently finished the um, Missional Discipleship Initiative Level 2 course called Developing Missional Leaders. And like most everything else in our lives um, this spring, that, that also was somewhat disrupted by the whole COVID-19 thing, but not so much, not as much as some other things because the classes were online to begin with. So um, I don't know that we Actually, well, we didn't actually miss any classes. Some of them may have been postponed while people got their lives and their new schedules sort of put together. At any rate, the uh, Missional Discipleship Initiative by Mennonite Mission Network continues, and Missional Discipleship Groups, or MDGs, are continuing to meet. Uh, and some are actually growing and dividing as they are um, designed to do. There is still and there always will be plenty of room for you to get involved, to be involved. And um, <clears throat> think about it, the last instructions given to the disciples by Jesus in Matthew, the 28th chapter, was to go and make disciples. That great commission is our welcoming verse in the bulletin for the morning. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe or to obey all things that I have commanded you, and surely I am with you to the very end of the age. Um, that passage, along with this, these verses from Acts, the first chapter, um, clearly indicate that this is a calling for all time and for all place, in all places. Uh, Acts chapter 1, beginning at the first verse. In my former book, Theophilus, and that would be the Gospel of Luke, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all the things that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles that he had chosen. 
After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. And he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while they were eating with them, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the time or the dates the father has sent by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So in Matthew's great commission, he says, surely I'm with you always to the end of the age for all time. And in this commission, in the book of Acts through Luke, he says, um, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea and Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth, to all places. This calling of being sent is uh, lifted up also by a third gospel writer. We had Matthew, we heard from Luke, but in the 20th chapter of the Gospel of John, um, beginning at verse 19, it says, On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were gathered together with their doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and side, and his disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And again Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. As the Father sent me, I am sending you. So, these words, of course, in Matthew's Gospel, in, in uh, the book of Acts, and in John's Gospel, these words, of course, were spoken to that original group of disciples or apostles, the ones we refer to as disciples. But they're spoken by extension to us as well. So my question again, and I know I've asked this before, but how are we doing with that? How are we doing with that sentness, with that commission that Jesus says, go? Go and make disciples of all nations for all time and everywhere. Um, how are we doing? Do we feel motivated? Are we moved to do that? What would it take to motivate us to, to be more missional and to take a more missional approach to the life we live? To the relationships that we have. I thought in terms of pondering those questions that we should perhaps consider what it took for the first disciples, that group of apostles, and for the early church in Jerusalem. What did it take for them to actually be motivated, for them to actually begin to move to live out this commission that Jesus uh, proclaims here in the first chapter of Acts. 
So in order to kind of figure that out, we need to, we need to follow through with the story in the first part of the book of Acts. And following our Acts 1 reading, the, um, remember that Jesus says to them, stay in Jerusalem for now. Uh, but in a few days, he said, John baptized with water, but in a few days, you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And when that happens, he says, power is going to come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in those places, Jerusalem in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So following that Acts 1 reading, um, a few days is right. Luke says that he, he appeared to them over the course of 40 days and taught them about the kingdom. Um, we don't know exactly all that happened, all that he said, but it just says he gave many conclusive proofs that he was alive over a period of 40 days. But then the day of Pentecost came. Pentecost is 50 days after Passover. That's what Pentecost means. So uh, it's true what Jesus said. In a few days, the Holy Spirit is going to fall upon you. You'll be baptized by the Holy Spirit. So 10 days, basically, from the 40 days that that he was with them until the 50 days of Pentecost. And that all happens in the second chapter of Acts, the day of Pentecost, that event when the Spirit falls on them and the gospel is proclaimed in every language that was represented in Jerusalem at the time. Everyone heard the gospel preached in their own language. Um, they questioned what's going on here. Peter stands up and preaches this sermon, calling the people to repentance. The people, when in response to Peter's sermon, say, what should we do? What should we do? And he says, repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. And it says that thousands were added to the church on that day. The church literally in Jerusalem literally exploded. And then the following chapters are, you know, as the story progresses, and it's a, it would be a long passage, Go home and read those early chapters of the gospel or the, the book of Acts. Um, the following chapters are filled with stories of healings, of trials, of some opposition, of God's miraculous deliverance of, from prison of Peter and and um, and other at other times their deliverance from the the council. It's also filled with stories of the church steadily growing there in Jerusalem. You know, the one the first day there's 5,000 added, another day there's 3,000 added. But there are also problems. Problems begin to appear in the church. And this is one place where even though Jesus says in a few days and we have this 10-day period between when he said that and the day of Pentecost, so we're given a time frame there. But we aren't really given a time frame for how long this is taking for the church to to develop and, and grow in Jerusalem. We aren't really given a time frame. Some of the ways that it's written makes it seems like it's happening very quickly. Other, other ways that it's written um, <clears throat> could, pro could probably be interpreted that quite a time period has passed. It could, it could have been years that the church was there in Jerusalem and going through the things that they were going through. 
But as it developed, as the church developed there in Jerusalem, it grew, there were also problems that appeared within the fellowship. There were problems of lying and deception. Think Ananias and Sapphira. Um, there were problems of ethnic inequalities between those who spoke Greek and those who spoke Hebrew. Um, the forces of division that work on us uh, so powerfully worked on them as well. Everything, everything that is common to humankind as this, as this fellowship is developing in Jerusalem, everything existed there as well. So in response to those kind of problems and issues, the ethnic inequalities, the, the apostles have the people select the spirit, select spirit-filled men um, to serve. I mean, if you read the story, the wording actually is the apostles said it wouldn't be appropriate for, for us to take time away from our ministry to wait on tables. So find seven men who are filled with the spirit and we'll let them do that ministry of distributing to the people so that we can focus on study and preaching the word and teaching the word. All in all though, this was a period of time in Jerusalem. It, it, uh, they were going through a period of time in Jerusalem of relative peace and stability for the church. Um, at the end of Acts chapter two, it talks about uh, they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching. Um, they, they broke bread together. They went from home to home, breaking bread together and worshiping together. Uh, they sold possessions and pooled their money so that no one had need. They shared together in that way. And then it ends with, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This was a time of growth and stability for the church in Jerusalem. So all is looking good. All is looking good here in Jerusalem. But what about the rest of the commission? What about the in all of Judea and all of Samaria? and to the very end of the earth. What about that bit? Well, if you read the story, something really interesting happens. One of the men chosen to wait on tables, chosen to be a <clears throat> servant in the church in Jerusalem, one of the men turns out to be uh, an absolutely powerful and persuasive preacher and he begins to have a ministry of preaching in the temple. And people are responding to his message. And um, so much so that the Jewish leaders take notice. And they arrest him, much as they arrested the, the apostles uh, earlier in, uh, in the story. They arrest him. And they put him on trial that looks very much like the trial of Jesus, false Witnesses come forward and lie about him. Um, he has an opportunity to defend himself. And if you want to just read a fantastic sermon that takes you from the Old Testament all the way through the cross, um, read, um, read Stephen's sermon in um, Acts chapter 7. They put him on trial. And, they, and that trial leads to a death that is very much like the sacrificial death of Jesus. 
Again, there are some incredible parallels. Jesus on the cross saying, Father, forgive them. About the ones who are actually killing him. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And Stephen's last words as he's dying, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Do not hold this sin against them. Very, 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 just an incredibly parallel story between the trial of Stephen and the trial of Jesus. And you can read about that, as I said, at the end of chapter 7, Acts chapter 7. And then something, I said, and then something happens. Then something really happens. All hell breaks loose against the church in Jerusalem. Let's read a little bit about that in the 8th chapter, beginning at verse 1. On that day, on the day that Stephen died, on that day a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. So, as I said, hell breaks out against the church in Jerusalem. But remember the words of Jesus to Peter that I, re that I referenced. Last week, I think, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it, will not prevail against it. So we need to note very carefully verse 4, verse 4 of Acts chapter 8. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. That's what happened. That is what happened. And so we're introduced then on into chapter 8. We're introduced to another one of the seven who was appointed to wait on tables, who was appointed to be a servant. Philip, who becomes a preacher to the Samaritans. It says that Philip goes down, what is verse 5? Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed Christ there. And when the people of Samaria heard him, they responded to the message the Samaritans responded to the message of Christ so that we have this account. Um, we have this account of the gospel now going out from Jerusalem into Judea, into Samaria. Philip is mentioned repeatedly throughout chapter 8 in the book of Acts. And another thing that he does is he approaches the chariot of a, a eunuch in the court of the queen of Ethiopia. And we have that very familiar story of Peter going and saying, do you understand what you're reading? And the, and the person said, how can I understand it if I don't have anybody to teach me? So Philip, using the scripture from the book of Isaiah that the man was reading, proclaims Christ to him. He is baptized and he goes on his way rejoicing, it says on home to Ethiopia. So we begin to get the picture. We begin to see the picture of what is happening. Philip, as I said, is mentioned 
frequently the book the the eighth chapter of Acts is largely about him and his ministry and the work that he's doing. But he's not mentioned again until Acts chapter 21 when Luke writes and says on on Paul's final journey back to Jerusalem they come to Palestine and and Luke writes and says we stayed in the home of Philip the evangelist in the city of Caesarea. We stayed in the home of Philip the evangelist, one of the seven. That's the that's the same Philip we're looking at here in chapter 8, who had four unmarried daughters who, who also prophesied. Four unmarried daughters who also prophesied. And remember, prophecy is not fortune-telling. Prophecy is foretelling. Prophecy, in the, in, the, in the biblical sense, is taking the word of God and speaking it forth. And so look what's happened in the church. When the church was centered in Jerusalem, you had apostles. Jesus appointed them. You had apostles. Then the church had needs, and they appointed servants. You had shepherds. You had people who respond to the need. You have individuals who respond to the needs of the people. That's what a shepherd does. That's what a servant does. The apostles said it's not appropriate for us to do that because we need to devote our time to studying and teaching the word. So we had apostles. We had servants. We had teachers. But if you go back to Ephesians 4 and Paul's APAST model, we were, missing, we were missing evangelists and prophets. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. That's apest. So here, here, as Luke says, we stayed in the home of Philip, one of the seven. Philip the evangelist, one of the seven, whose unmarried daughters also prophesied we round out this ministry of the church. We have apostles, we have servants, we have teachers, we have evangelists, we have, we have prophets. But I think more significantly, we now have, by the end of chapter 8, we now have a witness in all Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth, to Ethiopia, which is way over there in Africa. You see what's happening? Coming out of this time of severe persecution comes the persecutor himself as we move on into chapter 9. And we have the story in chapter 9 begins with the story of, uh, I like the way it begins, Paul still breathing threats. Paul still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples, goes to the high priests and asks them for the authority to go to Damascus, which is up in Syria. Talk about the ends of the earth. Reaching out from Jerusalem, he's going to go after the church even in distant places. He wants to go to Damascus and go after the followers of the way. But something again, something happens. On the way to Damascus, we have the vision and the conversion of the Apostle Paul. And then the rest of the story, as they say, is history, right? Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth because Paul becomes this missionary who, in his own words... In Luke chapter 15 and verse 20, in his own words, Paul describes himself this way. 
It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ is not known. It's always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ is not known. And I don't know if he ever made it to Spain, but I know he had desire. He had a desire to go to Spain because he says that in the book of Romans. He said, you know, I'll stop and visit you on my way to Spain. All that we know from the book of Acts is he went back to Jerusalem and just like Stephen was, and others were by that time, he was arrested by the Jews. He was put on trial. He made his appeal to the Supreme Court, if you will, to Caesar in Rome because he was a Roman citizen. And all that we get from that is that he is shipped off to Rome through a lot of trial and heartache. He ends up in Rome. And by the book of Acts, he's living in a, he's living in a rented house and he's preaching the gospel to anyone who comes to him. But we don't know if he got to Spain, but we know that was his desire. And we know this about him. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ is not known. So this vision of Christ, this commission of Christ, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. Power is going to come on you when the Holy Spirit falls on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and the earth. We know that that happened, but again, let's not lose sight of what it took for that to happen. What did it take for that to happen? Because the church in Jerusalem was doing fine. They were growing, they were sharing, they were taking care of the needs of each other, they were working their way through the problems that arose with God's help and with God's presence. They were, they were doing fine. Those first apostles, and in fact, even, did you catch that? Even as the persecution broke out, it says on that day that Stephen died, severe persecution broke out and everyone except the apostles was scattered. Why they weren't scattered, I have no idea. But at least in that part of the story, they stayed in Jerusalem. They were centered in Jerusalem. But everyone else who was scattered, it says, preached the word wherever they went. So if we don't lose sight of that, it took intense and severe persecution for the church to move forward into, a, into the witness that Jesus had foretold, into the commission that he had given. And perhaps that's exactly what we need. Christians in our culture, the church in our culture. Perhaps that's what we need because we're, we're comfortable. We're comfortable, we're secure. We whine and complain and oh, there's a war on Christianity. Oh, they're coming after us, they're coming after us, but they ain't nobody's shed blood yet. You know. Don't know of anybody that's been tossed in, into prison yet just because they believe in Jesus the way that they were in Jerusalem, the way that Paul wanted to do in Damascus. In the meantime, we can, we can whine and we can complain, but we're really comfortable. We're really comfortable. We're growing. We've got our mega churches. When I, when I think of the condition of the church in America and Christianity in America, I'm thinking this is what it's going to take. This is what it's going to take to motivate us, to move us out of, away from ourselves, away from our Jerusalem, 
into, into the ends of the earth. How ready are you to give up the comfort, your safety, your stability, your security that you have in your life? How ready are you to reach out beyond yourself to be my witnesses in Jesus' words? I, over the course of the years, you know, and this is in a business sense even, um, all the years that I was working in administration in um, nonprofit organizations, child welfare and, and mental health organizations, I, I went through so many trainings, I heard so many times, I, just over and over again, the whole, the phrase, paradigm shift, new ways of thinking, step out of your comfort zone. I heard that so much, I'm sick of hearing that. Because that's all it is. It's just a cliche, it means nothing. In all that time, I, I, I know very few, very few people who actually stepped out of that which was their security. And all of those agency directors and people that were talking about new ways of thinking and doing things differently, that was all great because they were making their money and they, nobody was gonna threaten that. It was just tweaking things a little bit, you know? It wasn't really stepping out of your comfort zone. It wasn't really stepping out of your security to actually move out. I know very few people who are willing to give up their comfort to actually reach out. And how are we any different? How are we any different? We say we're not slaves to fear. Really? Then why are we not reaching out to the immigrant community, to refugees, in desperate need around the world? Why are we not reaching out to the poor, to the rejected, to those who are discriminated against for whatever reason? Sure, we can send aid, and we do. We do a good job of that. We can send aid, we can send refugee kits and relief kits and health kits, and we can send canned meat and money, money, money. We can send it to meet those kind of needs, but none of that threatens our security. None of that threatens uh, my comfort zone because here I am in Jerusalem and the church is doing fine. Church is growing, you know, great things happening. Here I am. But here are the words of Jesus. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, but also in all of Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You know, go, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. We can do those kind of things that I mentioned, but what about inviting people into our own homes, into our own communities, into our own fellowship? Where are the people who are different than we are? We're comfortable with people, we're comfortable with each other, we're comfortable with people who are like us, but where are the ones who are not like us? who have different skin color, who have different attitudes, who have different beliefs perhaps, different practices, where are they among us? How are we reaching out? What would it really take for us to be witnesses for Jesus Christ in all of Judea and Samaria to the very ends of the, ends of the world, of the earth, till the end of the age? Because he says, so I think questions that we should be asking ourselves in our current circumstances and maybe, maybe these, 
circumstances are such that it could prompt us to ask these questions. God, what are you trying to show us? What are you trying to show me? What, how are you trying to move me? Instead of asking the question, Lord, how are you trying to move me? How are you trying to take me from where I was to where I need to be? Instead of doing that, I, what I've heard is we got to get back to normal. We got to get back to the way things were. We, you know, we have to get back to normal. That's what I've heard. I haven't heard people saying, let's ask the question, what is God trying to do to us? What is God trying, where is God trying to take us? Where is God leading us by these current circumstances? How is he trying to shift? You talk about a paradigm shift. How is he trying to get us out of our comfort zone? Maybe most importantly, where, where, Lord, do you want me to go? And how do you want me to be in order to make disciples for Jesus? Maybe this time that feels like in fact, it is, feels like growing turmoil and divisiveness among us. Maybe this is a time where the Lord is saying to us, as he said to the church in Jerusalem, go. Go. And then finally, the Lord had to say, and he used persecution to do it, I'm serious. Go. <laughs> you know, get out of here. Go. It took, it took severe persecution. Remember verse 1. That day, great persecution broke out against the church. Is that what God may need to do to move us, to get us moving? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you as your children. Humbled by this call of Jesus to go and make disciples of all nations, to reach out from our Jerusalem into our Judeas and Samarias to the ends of the earth. And we recognize that we can do so many things, much as the church in Jerusalem was doing so many things, valuable things, but we also recognize that it is such a temptation for us to settle into our own security, our own safety, to get very defensive about what it is that we believe and how it is that we want to live. And Lord God, we fail to look to you to ask the questions of how you want to move us, how you want to shape us into apostles, and prophets and evangelists and servants and teachers so that your church, so that your kingdom can be established in the world and build up and strengthened. So I pray, Lord, that you would forgive us when we don't ask the proper questions. I pray that you would forgive us when we put our energy into keeping ourselves comfortable and, and, and secure and at peace. I pray that you would forgive us when we listen to voices in the culture around us that are intended to divide and separate us from the very ones that you may be asking to call us to reach out to. Lord God, 
We are your people. We are imperfect people. You are our only hope. You are our only salvation. Ultimately, you are our only security. And so help us to trust in you and step forward in faith from Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth, to the very ends of the age. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we transition to announcements and, uh, well, actually, I guess not, kind of a transition to announcement. This uh, Saturday is the Gospel Sing, and um, one of the one of the groups coming to minister there is sold out, and Nancy had a CD from uh, sold out. I think, David, are you prepared to play that sold out song? We'll have that as a sort of a um, transition here into our announcement time. Mm -hmm. 